Hey y'all, this is Mo. I just want to thank you for choosing to listen to Parenting is Political. There are over 700,000 podcasts out and active right now, today. So the fact that you're listening to this one, I don't think it's a coincidence, and I appreciate you being here. If you'd like to show your support for Parenting is Political, you can go to our website and sign up as a paid subscriber. There are monthly giving options as well as one-time donation options. Podcasts are free to listen to, but they aren't free to make. So I would appreciate any support that y'all could give to help me continue to make Parenting is Political. I hope y'all enjoy the episode. Bye! Hey everyone, welcome back to Parenting is Political. This is Mo. And I'm Jasmine. And we are not joined this week by our co-host August, who is our 13-month-old baby, because August is taking a little nappy nap. August has been sick and cranky and needed to lay the fuck down. Yeah, but we still believe that, you know, you should normalize having children in your life, even when you're working. But this week, August is asleep. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Yeah. Um, Wow. I would ask you how you've been, but... Garbage. (laughs) Flaming hot garbage. I didn't want to open up the can, you know? Well, this is what we're talking about, right? We are True. talking about uh, the truth around mental health and well-being. Yeah. Um, and parenting and the politics of it all. There's so many. And uh, this is a really, um, I think, needed conversation to be had around this. Um, I was the one who kind of reached out to you and was like, hey, think we need to talk about this i think there's a there's, a, there's like a baby movement around ending the stigma around um mental health disabilities i mean i think that you should give the mental health parenting maternal movements a bit more credit there's been a lot of work done around maternal mental health in particular um and parenting with disabilities so yeah, yeah it's, not guess, a ba- it's not a baby it's not a baby you're right it's, sh- it's grown I, as hell it is and i want to see it grow more i guess was my heart behind that but you're right i shouldn't say that yeah uh so yeah there is a reality around parenting that means discussing mental illness uh, as it just relates to um invisible disabilities for whatever reason whether it's trauma or otherwise. And so that's what this episode is about. And we encourage y'all to go ahead and push stop if you are a person who's easily triggered around Mm -hmm. pretty intense conversations of trauma and self-harm, childhood and adult sexual abuse and harassment, uh, and just just general general, uh, mental health conversation. So it's okay to skip this episode if it's too heavy or difficult. And the other thing that we want to do is set the container for the episode, meaning, you know, when you are done with this container, what it should hold or what it will hold is just a conversation where we're trying to normalize um, folks who are doing family together dealing with their invisible disabilities as it relates to mental wealth or excuse me, mental health and well-being but also mental wealth I wish um, I had some mental wealth and so at the end of this episode we're not going to have real answers for you this is just a discussion about our personal experiences this is also not a therapy it's not replacement. a therapy replacement yeah and nor yeah. should it be used as such or any kind of other well-being practitioner that you use um, to support your mental psychosocial emotional health 
the other the other point around this is that we get a lot of like fangirl mail. Yeah. Where people are, you are the best parents. I wish I had parents like you. I want to be a parent like you. Y'all are so incredible. And we don't get a lot of hate mail. We get racist. Yeah. Which we monitor and block and kind Whatever. of. Whatever. But, the, but and they're mainly on Facebook, too. That's why, I don't, that's why I don't fucking get on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But when we, but when we get those other people coming to us, what they don't see really um, are the struggles and the incongruencies and the ways in which we have had to grapple with real life shit in order to come through to the other side. Um, and sometimes we're not even all the way through it. Right? No. Yeah. <laughs> we're still in process. So let's talk, Mo. Yeah. Um, let's talk. Let's do it. I will start us off, I guess, talking about my experience with it. Is Go that, for it. Mm-hmm. Is that a good jumping, jumping off point? Um, yeah, so I have been diagnosed with depression officially, although I think that there's definitely some levels of trauma and PTSD that I've experienced um, in my life. But the, you know, the kind of the root of it all has was just being raised in an environment that constantly told me that I, I just, I wasn't good enough. I was, I didn't deserve to be loved. Um, that I was an abomination and all of that. Obviously, it was centered around my identity as like a queer person and a non-binary person, which I didn't know at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a development that I came to realize whenever I was in college. However, you can't not hear those things. And then once you realize that those things were applied to you, that was already 20 years of consistent um, things spoken over you that it's impossible not to believe at that point. And so, um, you know, I did I did my coming out journey and I finally had the courage to come out to my, my family and that didn't go well, um, to say the least. Um, I think probably one of the harshest things that was said to me was that my mom, you know, said that she'd rather die than have a gay child, um, which was obviously not the easiest thing to hear. So I, I definitely um, spiraled into a very deep depression, um, had suicidal ideations, went to go see um, a therapist and a psychiatrist and got on antidepressants pretty quickly, did everything I could just to stay alive for a while. Um, but my, my, my um, psychiatrist said that this was just a seasonal thing, that once I got stable, once I met other gay people, that I would be fine and be good and that my depression should kind of go away. <laughs> um, here I am, though, eight years later, mm. still very much depressed, mm. still very much have, you know, that low self-worth that I'm working through. Um, now, however, I have four kids, mm. and it didn't just stop when I became a parent. Um, my depression just didn't go magically disappear. I still am medicated. I still take medicine every morning to help me function. If you can't make your own yeah. neurotransmitters, <laughs> store-bought is fine. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just... Um, that's that's my own personal journey, the short of it, I guess. I could get into a lot more detail, but that's the short of it. That's my background with my mental health disability, my unseen disability, I should Invisible say. Invisible disabilities. Yeah. yeah. And my story is that I am a childhood rape survivor. The first rape I experienced... Um, that I have a memory of was when I was seven and um, by by a parental figure 
and then continued until I was 13 by another parental figure. Um, and so that was sort of the base of my trauma and then everything else just kind of was like a crapshoot between there around domestic violence and um, you know medical abuse spiritual abuse all of those things and I have spent since the time I was about 16 in intense therapy doing all of this work and then trying to figure out also how to unpack my harmful behaviors that resulted from some of that trauma and of course during all of this time um escaping a previous deeply abusive marriage and making sure that my children were safe and so you know you land I land at 2019 having been through all of these phases of life and in the meantime still trying to figure out how can I be a restorative parent how can I be a parent who holds space for myself but also my children how do I look at parenting in a way that doesn't indebt my children to heal me um, and doesn't take too much from them around what their role is in my health and well-being while also knowing that relationships with young people can be very healing. Yeah. Right? And young people do have the power to heal each other and people that have positional power over them in a way that is consensual and rooted in community and love and nurturance. So just holding all those things in tension. Yeah. Um, and it's been a, it's been a huge journey. It has been for sure. So my question for you is, and I think we can just bat back and forth around, uh, curiosities we have for one another, Mm -hmm. but when, of course, you've always held this mental health stuff intention, and then you became a parent, uh, an instant parent to three of our kids, and then we're at the beginning of the life of August. But at what point did you ever see yourself going, "Oh, like this is this is my mom trauma stuff. This is maybe am am I being my mom in this way? Yeah. Um, and how like how did that show up for you and how you parented and how did you become aware of it? Yeah. Oof. That's a good question. Yeah. Go ahead and tell these strangers over the internet how you're like your mom. <laughs> <laughs> we both have mom issues. So it's like, okay, cool. I think, I think the thing that I've learned, the, I, this is, sounds interesting to say now. I think that shows like my journey in it, but I think that I have so much more understanding and so much more grace for my mom than I ever would have if I don't, if I never became a parent. Yes. Like, there are definitely some things that she did that were, like, <coughs> fucked up and that aren't okay. And mainly a lot of that is centered around, like, homophobia and transphobia and racism. And those things are things that, like, I am currently trying not to pass on to the next generation. Right. But, like, the things that are in between that I didn't, as a child, have the ability or the tools or the resources to understand that I think that she had a lot of stuff going on in her own life. And I think probably because of the way that she was raised and then, you know, doubly impacted by this white evangelical Christian church model that you don't really share your true feelings. It kind of like emotionally stunts you in a sense. You'd be authentic enough for like the small group setting. But when things are really hard and you're going through some stuff, you really don't talk about it. Yeah. And so in our household, that was also the model. Like when you were going through some really hard stuff, we didn't talk about it. And I'm sure like, and now as I'm thinking back that, you know, my mom probably had so much going on that she didn't feel like she could talk about. Um, and that really sucks. But 
at the same time, like, I understand that, like, the ways that she was operating were the ways that she had learned how to cope from the things that had happened in her life. Mm-hmm. But some of the things that, you know, I grew aware of pretty quickly was that when my mom was really frustrated and upset about something, she would do this tight-lipped face when she was angry, mm. and, but then she would shut down and she wouldn't say anything and she would, like, leave the room, but she would leave, like, this vacuum hole in the room. Mm. Of, like, suck all the air she'd out. She'd suck huh? all the air out and then we would walk on tiptoes. Eggshells. Yeah. Yeah, eggshells the rest of the day or however long we knew she was upset and then she would just come back however long it took and then she would be, like, peachy keen again. We'd never talk about it. Oh. So, whenever I became a parent, I guess that was a really long answer to come back to say when I became a parent, I noticed that I started doing that pretty early on. Yeah, creating this culture of hostility by not naming what's happening yeah. in your interpersonal interactions. Yeah, right? like the, the kids would do something or you would do something that really pissed me off. And if, instead of saying, this made me angry, I'm upset or I'm frustrated and I need space to like chill out for a bit. I would shut down, my face would contort, and I would kind of, like, storm off. And then I would never come back and have a conversation with y'all about it. And that was a pattern that I noticed as a kid I didn't like, and that was harmful. And then when I realized that that's what I was doing, I didn't want to keep doing that. But that's, you know, that's an emotional, like, like, I don't know the word to say about it. Yeah, so, I mean, I wouldn't say... I mean, you have every right to define whatever you experienced with your family of origin as abusive or not abusive, however it landed for you. I wouldn't conceptualize that as abuse. I would say that it created definitely an unsafe and hostile family environment where you were really unsure about what was happening. You didn't get... Um, transparency you didn't have reciprocity and communication so you could never adjust your behavior yeah so the then because of that environmental um, habit it created nervous and tentative attachments for you that amounts to anxiety and then as that anxiety never abates it becomes depression and other pathological behaviors right that, yeah. that then become you know part of your mental health landscape as an adult so yeah, I, yeah, mean, I, I remember that it was like abusive. I was just saying that was like one of the first things that popped in my head of like yeah. ways I remember distinctly being like, oh, my mom did this, mm-hmm. and it created kind of this pattern in my life. And if I could, you know, kind of throw the wrench in the middle and kind of stop that, that would be nice. Yeah, but you said you you remember that? Yeah, no, I remember whenever we first started doing family together, and you would behave that way, and everyone would be like, oh, well, Baba's upset, but <laughs> I wonder what's going on, and my response to the kids always was like, well, they have an obligation to tell us and communicate their needs. And if they haven't, no one's chasing after them. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, it's true. It was just like this whole, like, we are differentiated in this bitch. And if you have some feelings and thoughts about something, you can say it and we can respond and mm-hmm. we can find middle ground, but nobody is coming to save you or sort of like excavate from you the emotions that you're not willing to share with us. Totally. Uh, you know, which came from my experience of having a a mom who often was really codependent and made me do a ton of emotional labor as a young person around her needs. So I guess the point in, in some of what we're saying, and again, just to readjust for people, their expectations of this podcast, like this is, this episode in particular is a bit of a, a, 
a um, detour from the typical feel of the other episodes. We yeah. just want to have a conversation. We're not we trying to, to talk. fix anything. Yeah. This is just sort of like a coffee table conversation with Mo and I around our mental health. Yeah. But the thing that really strikes me that a lot of us don't understand um, or it takes years and years and sometimes never happens is arriving to the place that you illuminated and what you were saying about your mom. Understanding that it is the external it, that it is the external condition that we find ourselves that informs the abuse and the harm um, that we internalize as trauma, right? Like because your mom wasn't given tools as a result of patriarchy, white supremacy, yeah. and capitalism, because her silence and isolation was normalized, it had reverberations with you. Mm-hmm. And so I think the reason why this is such an impactful conversation for me is because the work you do to have political awareness around systems of oppression and not just learning about the problem, but taking action and then shaping your life as a result of that action, the lives of others, that in itself is fighting mental health stigma. Yeah. That in of itself becomes redeeming trauma. Mm. And um, oftentimes people go to therapy and I speak as a clinician, like a licensed <laughs> mental health therapist, people go to therapy, say, I want to address my anxiety, my depression. I want to talk through my family problems. And they really just want villains and heroes of their stories. They really just want to embrace this binary of, no, I'm the victim and I was harmed. And so that's why I'm behaving this way at 30 years old. Well, there is absolute truth that you could have been harmed and you do harm and you're complicit and you participate in these systems every single day. And while we can't know what we don't know until we know it, it's it's also critical that as we begin to learn, we say that there there is grace and and love for the people who didn't know better or did know better and still did it because yeah. that's also a thing. Um, but there's grace for ourselves in in moving from being people who are reacting to our trauma as victims and instead like responding as self-determined agents in our own well-being. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course those conversations are tempered with the reality that for some of us will never feel well. I'm one of those people that I will, I will, that it is very, very slim that I'll ever feel undamaged Mm -hmm. and whole. And, um, I will have moments, I think, and I can still have a beautiful life and I will, like my brain has been forever transformed by being raped at the age of seven and, and multiple times since then. Um, and and despite knowing all of that, despite my mental illness, like I've hurt people and I have to, I have to confront that. And some of those people that I've hurt have been my kids because of my mental illness um, and because of my trauma. And they've hurt me because of their uh, trauma and the, and the things that they go through. Totally. So, yeah, it's complicated. And so it is. And we, we want nice, neat categories to put things into. But I don't just I just don't. The more I live, the more I realize that life doesn't work like that yeah like I, I want to vilify my bio family that would be nice if I could just put that in a nice little box but there's so much that I understand now that I'm older mm-hmm. that I don't think that that works anymore mm. yeah do you think that our kids are often fearful because of the mental health 
um, disabilities that I have or that you have? Because I think that's a question that a lot of people have had around this conversation. You know, if you are honest with your kids about your mental health struggle, not explicit, right? Like you don't have to tell your kid that there was a suicide attempt or that you're having hallucinations or, or even that you just don't want to get out of bed because you're so sad today. Um, that you don't have to be explicit in that way. You can still, in developmentally appropriate ways, express what you're going through. But a lot of people say, I don't want to tell my kid because I don't want to make them feel scared. I don't want to give them issues knowing that I'm having issues. Yeah. I mean, I think I have a couple thoughts about that. I don't, I don't think that kids are naturally afraid of mental health disabilities. I think that's something they learn. Right. That's, that's socializing to us, right? Absolutely. So when your kids are, you know, however young or old they are... I mean, you have the first opportunity to really teach them that there's nothing that should be stigmatizing about having a mental health disability. Um, and then how, how you're talking to them about it, just like you said, as long as it's developmentally appropriate, I don't think that that's something that they'll be fearful of. I think that that'll give them words. It'll give them an understanding of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And it'll also help them self-identify in themselves maybe some things they're feeling. Maybe they feel depressed. Maybe they don't feel stable all the time. And if we aren't leading those conversations as the adults, they won't know how to open up to us sometimes. Yeah. sometimes. I think it helps give them words. Totally. I think that practicing vulnerability around what you're experiencing in a way that makes sense um, to you and to your family culture is crucial. Yeah. And it's okay to say, I, you know, I am feeling these feelings and I want you to know I'm still going to take care of you and we have a community mm-hmm. who's going to take care of you and give you the support you need and you don't need to try and take care of mommy, right? That's yeah, something that's that I've said. a huge thing. Is normalizing that everything is going to be okay for them because you're they're, they're, they are resilient, mm-hmm. your community is resilient, and you have the resources you need to, to take good care of your kid. But then also just being really honest And then maybe even asking them, have you ever had a time where you felt so sad you didn't want to play with your toys or you didn't want to talk to your friends? That's kind of what's happening in my heart and mind. And and then... And then when you frame it as something that's real, that impacts the day-to-day, and that is a disability, that helps them be more empathic toward people in the world. Mm -hmm. Right? So when they have their co-worker 20 years later who has severe depression, they're not punitive toward that person, that they normalize it as no different than any other disability. Totally. Right? And it's not about the person being intellectually inept or, you know, all the other things that come along with an invisible mental health stigma. Um, I can always tell the difference between young people in my therapy sessions who have had family members who were honest about the family history of, um, like psychological disabilities and social emotional disabilities and the ones who didn't. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's, it's wild to me, even with my older clients who, who have, I've had in the past who come in and have this realization of like, I'm 45 and I just learned that everyone in my family had bipolar disorder. And I thought I was, you know, just out here being an exception to the rule, but it turns out it's been this family secret. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know? Family, yeah, no, that's real. That's, like, my family. <laughs> that's why I'm, like, over here vigorously nodding my head. I'm like, yes, I relate. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, we I share... 
pretty openly on my personal social media channels about my history with suicidal ideation, with um, attempting suicides and surviving my attempts, so, clearly, because I'm here, uh, <laughs> to my dismay, many days, um, and severe depression, mm-hmm. and just the features of PTSD, which often manifest as depression and anxiety, OCD, mm-hmm. some reactive attachment stuff, but... There's a risk. I think we would be, it would be irresponsible for us to not name that for queer families, Mm -hmm. particularly queer families who have family members who are people of color and black, you know, primarily black, there's a risk in being honest and open because there's already so much social stigma against us and structural um, oppression. And the systems of our world seek to penalize us for existing in the most quote-unquote functional of bodies. So to have a quote-unquote pathological or dysfunctional body because my neurobiology is not the same as like a cis, hetero, Mm -hmm. middle-class white man, to say out loud that I'm struggling and this is a thing is absolutely an incredible act of courage and resilience and and defiance but it also is a huge fucking risk it is and in there's not a day goes by that you can't not think about that like those are the added pressures onto our family right right and then and you know it's a risk that black women when they admit that they have postpartum depression or symptoms of postpartum depression are not given help like their white counterparts their dhs is called and their children are removed Mm. Mm mm-hmm um, and so that's also a political thing. And so I think that the white listeners who are thinking about how they orient themselves in these intersections of parenting and politics and disability conversation and wellness and mental health, one of the things that you can do as you're having these conversations with your family and with the people you find yourself in concert and community with, whether it's on social media or in person or wherever, you find yourself able to have these conversations is by uplifting that reality. Yeah. Uplifting that reality. And um, also just sort of like rejecting the myth that people of color are uh, bulletproof. The strong black woman? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Those tropes actually hurt our mental health because it makes it difficult for us to access the community support and empathy because we are supposed to be playing these roles. Shout out to Danielle Slaughter, right? Yeah. We had an interview with her earlier in in the season, and she wrote an amazing article calling being a strong black woman is killing me, right? Yeah. Is that the name of it? Yeah. Absolutely. It's a really good article. Y'all Google it. Google Daniel um, Slaughter. Yeah. Mama can Dimmicks. we? Mama Dimmicks, yeah. Uh, can we talk about self-care? Oh, <laughs> or shit. no. Is that another episode? I feel like it's another episode, but okay. people are always like subbing me on the internet because I got some thoughts and feelings about self-care and how individualistic it's become a commodity. It's so, like the whole industry is extractive in so way, so many ways. And uh, it makes me even more rage filled when the like wealthy white cisgender hetero people are coaching other people on wellness. Like, no, (laughs) absolutely sit the fuck down. No one wants to hear how to be better from you. Susan. <laughs> Susan. <laughs> Becky. Yeah, no, really. Well, I just wanted... Maybe we could talk about it, but then that's also, I feel like, a uh, a tangent maybe. I don't know. I feel like it would relate, but... 
we also didn't talk about this before we yeah. started recording. So no, 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 that's fine. I think that it's an important conversation, self care, um, and and especially if you're conceptualizing self care through self rehabilitation or rehabilitation, because you know we can't heal in isolation. Uh, but I feel like the majority of the conversations around mental health always detour into conversations of self-care and that's mm-hmm. probably our own discomfort and being willing to sit with having no real solutions mm-hmm. around our psychological suffering mm-hmm. and not creating enough space for us to be like you know what it just really fucking sucks yeah and we got to take medicine and some of us take medicine some of us don't some of us do other different modalities and that's totally valid as well but even those modalities don't take it away no and that's, right. See, they lessen. That's they, they, lessen <laughs> they lessen some of the symptoms, but like the healing work, that shit is painful. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes excruciating, um, and it can it can last for the rest of your life. And so immediately, you know, detouring from here's the heaviness. Here's how family stuff and trauma has played out. Now let's talk about self care and wellness. Um, feel feels a lot like just like well where where's the solution i want this to end i feel like self-care is the new well i'll pray for you it's like it's like the what easy, kind of self-care have it's you the done? easy band-aid to be like that seems really heavy and uncomfortable so i'm just gonna be like well you know like self-care are you taking care of yourself have you done like your bubble bath instead of like really sitting yeah well but is if, that fair or is that i mean i think it's both and i think there are so many good things about self-care right like it's it's super important for us to tend to our well-being and yes i'm not saying you shouldn't right but the way in way the way that it's weaponized yeah. against like those of us who will forever be people with disabilities and quote unquote the unwell like the ill yeah um is to say well you have been on your phone and uh you know have you read a good book because self-care dictates x y and z as though i did, wouldn't fucking want to read a book if i had the attention span to do so because my anxiety calmed down enough for five minutes yeah right and also the whole conversation around the popular neoliberal movement of like self-care and well-being completely ignores the fact that some of us our issues are rooted in the fact that we don't have others caring for us the way we deserve Mm -hmm. that we are intrinsically linked to one another that we need one another in um in in healthy attachment right like in interdependence and we have not found the communities that we need to be interdependent with and the community care is lacking and that's what's causing us harm yeah because community care is self-care, right? Right. Community care is self-care, particularly as it relates to communities of color. Yes. When when, all, when a few of us care on one another to keep one of us safe, we're all safer. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, people... I Like, I am actually very, very good at self-care. I'm so good at it. Like, I will take all of the... Um, measurements that folks consider should be measurements i have had myself in therapy i go to my psychologist and psychiatrist um i move my body in ways that feel meaningful i'm present with my food what has always been the missing um key to my well-being as it relates to like the community part of this is i haven't consistently had a community who will show up and hold me Mm mm-hmm 
In fact, it has been my community who have been the root of my triggers, Mm. the root of my abuse, and have extracted from me consistently, especially when I'm vulnerable. Because when I'm vulnerable, my self-care habit of boundaries goes out the fucking door, and I am left wide open, and people kind of like grab like I'm a candy store and run away, and then I feel depleted and need people to pour into me, and I and I don't I haven't always had that. And, and that's not the conversation that people have around self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, and also self-care has been sort of uh, hijacked by the beauty yeah. and <laughs> like luxury spa uh, industry. Yeah. And people don't talk about how self-care sometimes is actually working two extra hours in the evening so that you get your, your work pile organized and you can start the next day feeling refreshed. That's the conversation we were having around dishes the other day, remember? We're doing the dishes, yeah. You were like, babe, just come and sit. You've had such a long day. Like, you can leave that for tomorrow. I'm like, no, taking care of myself, a part of that is making sure these dishes are done so I'm not stressed in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I just yeah. never conceptualized it like that yeah. until recently. But, but I could have been like, where's your fucking bath bomb? Yeah. <laughs> like, how dare you not stop working after 8 p.m.? Like, Right. Sometimes you need to. Everything in balance, I guess. Right. And, you know, you know, a part of the whole movement, or, or not the movement, but part of the um, pop culture norms around mainstream self-care conversation, it just, it just always, it always centers in these things that, it, they, they don't make sense for those of us who are working poor yeah. and disabled yeah. and, um... It's just wild. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. Anyway. That was the side tangent I kind of wanted to go on, but... So, so what's the the one thing, as people log off, uh, that you want them to know about mental health and parenting in this conversation that we've had? And, to be clear, we'll have more conversations that are a bit more structured in the container that it provides and maybe gives folks some options for how to practice different things around their mental health. Yeah. I would love to What's one thing that that if this is the last episode that they listen to on mental health that you want them to know about you? About me? Yeah. About you and parenting. Oh, okay. Oh, um, I guess. Dun, dun, dun. I know. (laughs) I guess that, um, I, I do have a mental health disability. I am a parent. Um, I do, I do medicate. That's part of, um, my brain. You use medication. Oh, sure. Is that the way we say it? (laughs) I mean, you can medicate with a lot of things. Okay. I use medication. You medicate with my body. What? Just kidding. (laughs) Don't. Don't do that. (laughs) Digress. Um, so those are important things that, um, I would like to start talking more openly about. I think... Um, something else I would like people to take away is that, um, you know, I like that I have conversations with my kids around it, um, that we talk about it in developmentally, developmentally appropriate ways. And I think that, um, the heart of our conversations always come back to, um, you know, reminding them that, that they don't have to take care of me, that that's not something that we, we're asking them to do. Right. Making sure that's a very, very clear, clearly communicated, and that's a very clear boundary. Um, but just letting them know that that's, that's a real thing that's happening in my life. And the, the heart behind those conversations that I do have with my kids around it is just so that it, it is normalized, that there's not this weird stigma around it, so that not, the, not so that they're fearful, but so that they aren't fearful. <laughs> 
so that they are grow up to be folks who are able to have these conversations, who are able to self-identify in themselves whenever they're feeling um, some some deep, heavy feelings, and also to like be really great like peer support for their people in their community, mm-hmm. giving them that that firm foundation from the very beginning of how to have these conversations. The realness and the authentic authenticity behind it is something that that kids need, and that we need to stop assuming that they can't handle these conversations. Mm. Yeah, the thing that I would want folks to take away is to normalize conversations with your young people about mental health. Even if you are not someone who has a disability, uh, normalize the conversation because their peers absolutely do Mm -hmm. um, experience these things. And so giving them a language and a framework for how to see people who are often very vulnerable when um, mental health issues are part of who they are. And then I think if you are a parent who has mental health disabilities of your own, um, figure out how to evaluate your own shame, your own internalized stigma so that you can live authentically in front of your kids because your, your young people need to be able to see what's actually happening because in the absence of an explanation that makes sense to them, they will blame themselves. I was about to say that, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so... Because yeah. they, they see. They notice it. They feel it. They feel it. They, like, are able to do those things. And so giving them the name to that is really important. Anyway, so yeah. that was a episode. <laughs> we did that. And I, I mean, I feel a bit insecure about it, again, like I did with a previous episode. Because it feels like, what do we give people? What have we done? But I think this is a starting point of a conversation around mental health. Especially right now in the news, people talking about the mass shootings that have been happening. And mm-hmm. the white nationalist terrorism that continues to unfold. People are learning um, are, are accessing more language to name it for what it is and still the proponents of white supremacy want to obfuscate the conversation and call it mental health issues yeah and so even just admitting as parents we have mental health issues issues becomes even more dangerous because people are conflating white nationalism and anti-black white supremacy on par with our mental health issues and I'm like no 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 I'm not gonna go shoot anything up because I haven't left my my house for two weeks (laughs) because my PTSD has agoraphobic features yeah right and and I see people across social media having these same conversations um and then of course my own mental health struggles as of late that I've been public about on my uh social media platforms sort of what was the engine I think behind your motivation of how do we just talk about this yeah I just I just wanted to have a conversation and it doesn't I, I agree it doesn't feel like there was much that we gave in this episode but I also think that that's probably us and how and we so, view ourselves and, well maybe who knows but I think that there was a lot of content here and I think that there all there will be folks who this will really help and resonate with well, if you liked the episode and or had questions or comments, please email mo at contact at parentingispolitical.org. You can also drop a DM or a comment 
in any of the uh, posts on Instagram mm-hmm. following the Parenting is Political handle, which is... At Parenting is Political. And if you want to try your hand at Facebook, feel free to follow us there. But we've pretty much checked out because that place is a toxic dump. It's a garbage can of fire. Yeah. Um, but we would love to hear like how you make sense of maybe mental health, mental illness, however mm-hmm. you conceptualize it. And are you talking to your kids about it? How you're talking to your kids about it? How are you talking to your young people? How do you talk to uh, your family? Mm-hmm. What does that look like? Yeah. Would love to hear from you. Yeah. And that's it for now. Bye. Bye.